Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Bout to the People. On this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual, and then we are joined by Michigan's first Black Lieutenant Governor, Gilchrist, to talk about his plans regarding criminal justice reform and what's going on in the state of Michigan. The thing that's been on my mind is, uh, what do you chase? It's a reminder that we should always chase our big ideas, we should chase our big goals, we should chase the world that we know we deserve. We should not chase people. We shouldn't chase attention, visibility, celebrity, fame. Don't chase those things. You know, every single time I've seen people chase the wrong thing, they get so off the path their heart is set on because they get enamored with all the glitz and the glamour or like just the wrong thing. It's like chase the work. What you want to do is always chase the work. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. Uh, maybe you all can help me out with something this week because I seem to have missed a memo, a meeting. Nobody told me that we were essentially having a coronation for Mike Bloomberg and the Democratic nomination. That is news to me. Um, I'm really confused because there's only one ballot that he's on in California that has been mailed to people. Uh, but the California primary has not actually occurred yet. Uh, he's been on no debate stages. He's got a whole lot of ads, though, with his own personal wealth. But people are talking like, oh, well, like him or don't like him. He's got this thing sewn up and he's the only one that can beat Trump. And I... I don't know. I thought that's what a primary was for. Did I did I miss something? Can y'all like fill me in? <laughs> is there a, are there notes? Are there, you know, is there a live stream I can catch? Like I missed all of this. It is strange to watch the way that narratives form, right? Like where I mean it does feel as if people have begun to accept or embrace or conclude that Mike Bloomberg is the Democratic nominee in waiting. And that he is the most well-positioned to beat Trump. And it's like we've only had two states that have voted, right? Like we've had two quite white states. Now it's like pod save the people, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Two quite white states made Mike run. (laughs) Run, Mike, run. (laughs) It is wild because like we've literally have only had two of the 48 states vote, right? And these states are not at all reflective of the larger demographics of the of the party and of the country. I imagine there will be a lot more time to talk about Mike Bloomberg and what he has said and done and his record, more time than we have at the moment. But I'm puzzled by it more than anything, right? The way that this is, that people have begun to accept this as an inevitability rather than recognizing that there's so many more states to go and that you don't have to accept a person that other people tell you is the best person. This is how electability has just warped everybody's brain, right? It's just like everybody is voting for the person that their mama told them that their cousin would vote for but wouldn't vote for if the other person – It was. it's just too much. Just vote for who you want to be president. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a vacuum, and it is incredibly dangerous, and it is irresponsible for people with platforms to discuss it that way. I could not agree with you more. And, like, Mike is just now getting vetted. Why? Because he waited until (laughs) late, until the fourth quarter to get in the game. So, like, we're just now finding out all of this stuff that candidates have been having to answer for for quite some time and like I've got critiques and questions for practically everybody that's well not practically everybody who is still left in the field but I am really confused and frustrated with how disrespectful it is and how much it erases 
the vast majority of this country. Um, it certainly erases marginalized people. It certainly erases black and brown New Yorkers who have a lot to say about Mike Bloomberg and his policies and his practices. Um, and it certainly erases the value of democracy in that we are supposed to hear from everyone as we make decisions. And win, lose, or draw, whether your person makes it across the finish line or not, we are supposed to be a country in which listening to one another, learning from one another is our value at the very least on the left. And I don't understand what's going on here. I understand what's going on, but I don't like it, right? I think what's going on is he has a whole lot of money, right? And he decided to use more money than anybody has ever used in a presidential election, other than maybe the Koch brothers. I feel like one of these elections, they probably spent a little bit more, but you know, over $300 million in ads, getting in the race this late, avoiding all of the scrutiny. Uh, it seems like an intentional strategy, right? Because he's reaching voters through Facebook, through Instagram, through a range of digital media platforms, through TV ads, through radio ads. Like that's how he's directly connecting with voters. The process that's been established, while that process includes a number of elements like New Hampshire and Iowa going before all the other states that are profoundly inequitable, at least there are debates, right? At least there is some level of back and forth and accountability that, that starts at some stage before people start voting so that we can begin to vet the candidates before the ballots are cast. And with Bloomberg, he sort of skipped around the whole process, spent half a billion dollars almost now. And you're seeing the benefits of that for him. And that's dangerous, right? Like that tells us that money is going a long way for him in buying at least a path or a look at the presidency in a way that it really shouldn't. And I feel like, you know, $60 billion, which Mike Bloomberg has, is just an amount of money that like, what do you do with $60 billion? Well, you can buy an election, like you can buy laws, you can buy governments, and that's what we're seeing happen, right? That is what you do when a presidential election, you know, costs, you know, $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion for the entire election. He has $60 billion. I mean, it's, that is why people should not be allowed to make and exploit and amass these incredible fortunes where it just puts them in a position to profoundly tilt the scales in their favor. And that's what we're seeing. It's what we saw with Trump. It's what we have been seeing from Republicans for years. Uh, it's now becoming a core feature and something that we are having to grapple with in real time in this presidential election on the Democratic side of things. And it is really concerning, especially given his record in New York uh, and the things that you know, we're just seeing, you know, again, some, some of these video clips of him talking about stop and frisk, um, talking about his intentional strategy of profiling black and brown men, uh, stopping more black and brown men each year than the total population of young black and brown men in New York City, which is like a wild statistic, 580,000 stops in 2011. All of those things are profoundly troubling. Um, and it's even more troubling that he's escaping all of that, so much of that scrutiny, at least outside of Twitter, by just using digital platforms, paying Facebook, paying Instagram, paying these large corporations to broadcast his message to millions and millions of people. You know, what I think is so interesting about Bloomberg is that I was following the coverage recently and then I was like, you know what? I don't know nothing this man believes besides this stop and frisk conversation that people are engaged in. So let me just go check. So I went to the website. There's a part of the website called Plans, and there are a lot of links under Plans. But when I tell you this is the most lukewarm, sort of faux, it's not progressive. It's like maybe what we would call moderate, but like it was just such a reminder that he hasn't been pressed on any of these issues because he hasn't been in a debate, like Brittany said. We haven't seen him like really do interviews in any meaningful way. He just has been buying ads. And in a context where there's not one news program that people watch, there's not a set of things that everybody experiences, people consume information in a host of ways now. He is just at a dramatic advantage because he has so much money. So when I look at his, there's a link on the page for the Greenwood Initiative, Economic Justice for Black America. It has one, two, three, four things total. Create generational wealth through home ownership. Okay. It's like, a, and then it's just word soup. Spur the creation of 100,000 new Black-owned small businesses. Again, word soup under it. Commit $70 billion in neighborhoods that need it. You're like, okay, where did the $70 billion come from? And then the last one's my favorite. Address systemic discrimination. You're like, okay. It is real vague, guys. He is like, implicit bias training for police and teachers is like the, it just thrown into a sentence. So... You know, it scares me that not only is he consuming so much of the public conversation in the polls, 
But like these ideas, y'all, are just way we fought a long time to push all the candidates to be more progressive, and he is a step back. I spent a lot of time on MSNBC this weekend talking about Mike Bloomberg, talking about his record, talking about the fact that, like you said, DeRay, it's very hard to tell what he believes in except for money and himself. It's also hard to believe what these plans are saying, even though they are not actually saying that much as of late, because some of the words from his own mouth in years past have been contradictory to that. So you tell me that you want to help heal some of the effects of redlining as the first point of your Greenwood initiative, but we just found tape of you actually implying that ending redlining was a bad practice because it led to the recession instead of the predatory lending that happened in Black and Latinx communities that actually has a great deal to do with why we hit that floor in 2008. So I don't need to hear what you say. I will look at what you do. And as of right now, what you've done doesn't show me any kind of loyalty or commitment to the very people that we've been fighting for all of this time. I just want to remind everybody that the primary is a long process. Like Clint said, vote for who you want to be president. Ask the tough questions. Do the vetting. Have good faith, honest conversations with people, with candidates, with one another about who you like and why. And then think about the kind of country that you want to build. Because if we are able to beat Trump, and God knows, I hope that we are able to, there is then a whole lot of repair that has to happen, a whole lot of governing that has to be done, and a whole lot of work that has to be done for generations. And if we stop If we stop with just beating Trump, then we will have done only a bit of the work that we're responsible to do. So be smart during this primary season, be open, be thoughtful, but mostly be committed to the vision that you have for what the world can be and not just a vision about beating somebody. And with that, the news. So my news is about maps. In particular, you probably have used Google Maps at some point. Indeed, Google Maps is responsible for 80% of all map searches online. Use Google Maps. That includes uh, maps that are used by companies like Uber or Yelp to help you locate uh, where you want to go to uh, or where you want to eat. Well, it turns out, according to a new article in the Washington Post, the maps don't look the same everywhere. So it turns out that the maps look different depending on which country you're in when you view them. This new article in the Washington Post looks at a series of differences in how Google Maps show up depending on uh, which country you're in. So for example, if you are in uh, India, the area that is known as Kashmir, which is a disputed region between India and Pakistan, uh, shows up as being a region that is part of India if you're actually in India when you look it up on the map. But if you are anywhere else in the world, uh, it actually shows up with a dotted border, which indicates uh, that the area is actually disputed uh, between India and Pakistan. Similarly, uh, you may remember when Russia and Ukraine, actually they're still fighting over Crimea as this disputed area that Russia basically tried to invade and take over. Well, if you're in Russia, it looks like a part of Russia on the map. But if you are outside of Russia, it looks like a disputed region. This is not unique to those two regions. There are a range of different areas across the world that are disputed regions that show up differently depending on which country you're in when you look it up. Um, So what's fascinating about this is they try to peel back the curtain and understand how these decisions are made. And it turns out that you have tech executives, uh, you have folks working at Google Uh, who are making huge decisions uh, that have incredibly, potentially devastating political consequences uh, in terms of how people understand the world, how people understand issues of power and nationality and identity. And these decisions are being made in many ways in response to political pressure. What Google is saying uh, when they were asked in this article is that they are responsive to local legislation uh, and local law with regard to how different regions are named and how they show up on the map. So if you're in India and uh, India lays claim to a particular area, uh, well, it turns out that that is reflective on the map when you're looking it up in India, despite the fact that that area is actually heavily contested and many people living in those areas do not identify um, with that given country. So I want to talk about this because we kind of take the maps for granted and assume that 
you know, that looking up the map in the United States is going to look the same as when you're looking up the map in another country. But it turns out that the decision on how the map looks, how different countries' borders show up, how disputed areas are assigned to a given country is a heavily political decision that is now being made in large part by tech companies that are not really accountable to anyone, right? This was something that was sort of discovered recently and is still present on Google Maps uh, to this day. So I'm going to go ahead and connect my news to yours, Sam, because I think I have a sort of historical take on this theme of disputed borders. And so many people know the Republicans in the 1850s and 1860s. Then they were the party of Lincoln and they created this coalition dedicated to preventing the expansion of slavery. And this is what Lincoln is known for, right? He signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freed the slaves, and the Republicans of the late 19th century established the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, making black people full citizens of the United States. States. Obviously, this was before the end of Reconstruction in which white terror pervaded black communities and rolled all of those rights back. And this story is more complicated than it is made in a movie like uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Lincoln's perspective on the rights of black people are similarly complicated and worth interrogating. And we've talked about that a little bit of this show. And if you're interested in learning more about that, I'd read Eric Foner's uh, excellent book on Lincoln, The Fiery Trial. With all that said, many people don't know, and when they think about Lincoln, don't really think about him in the context of how he treated indigenous people, uh, he and the Republicans of the 19th century, and it turns out they treated indigenous people really poorly. Uh, there's a new book out by historian Megan Kate Nelson, which explores in part Lincoln's policies around Native communities, and she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that outlines a large piece of her argument, right? And so this is where it ties into Sam's news, where the Republican platform in 1860 asserted that, quote, the normal condition of all territory in the United States is that of freedom. It also argued for industrial development, railroads, and homesteads for only white settlers. Indigenous homelands across the West, these Republicans thus believed, rightfully belonged to white American farmers who would go settle the land and expand the United States westward, otherwise known as Manifest Destiny. Uh, some of these policies included the Homestead Act, which provided hundreds of acres of public land for every loyal white citizen of the Union, the Pacific Railway Act, which approved federal support for the Transcontinental Railroad, a big part of what made Manifest Destiny possible. And there were other acts centered on setting aside public lands for new and again white settlers. But before the West could be settled with a bunch of well, these white farmers and their families, the federal government had to remove a major obstacle, and that major obstacle to them were the native people who lived there. In many of these places, the government had already created treaties with native tribes, but when they decided they wanted to expand into the West, the U.S. government basically just abandoned those treaties and said they were no longer relevant, and they tore up the proverbial pieces of paper and began declaring war on these native communities until they surrendered. Um, they moved these folks onto reservations where they could be monitored by troops and taught the, quote, art of civilization and converted to Christianity and made to speak English. In her book, what's interesting is Nelson draws parallels between the Republican Party of the 19th century and the Republican Party of today with regard to how they treat native communities. Um, and she talks about how despite signing several bills that support native rights in December 2019, President Trump's consistent stance has been to open as much public land to industries of excavation as possible, uh, and much of this land contains sites important to indigenous communities. For example, just four days after his inauguration, Trump signed an executive order to allow the Dakota Access Pipeline project to proceed, despite years of vigorous protests we all remember Standing Rock. The very next day, the president signed another order authorizing the construction of a border wall that has become infamous between the United States and Mexico, and the administration waived dozens of cultural and environmental laws that sent work crews to build the wall through sites of historic and cultural significance to indigenous communities whose homelands crossed the border into Arizona. And so I wanted to talk about this both because I think it's interesting. It's an interesting parallel to Sam's in that we have to remind ourselves that borders are, in essence, they are made up and they are determined by people who are in power, and they are often arbitrary lines in the sand that people in power shift in order to accrue more power. And this obviously has precedence across the world in terms of how different colonizing countries treated indigenous populations. And then Sam is showing us how Google and these technology firms whose primary interest is making money are trying to have it both ways, where they show people basically the map that they want to see. But it's interesting to think about how these two things are in conversation with one another. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. 
the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup Pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends... Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. So I don't know if you all caught this show that piloted earlier this week called For Life on ABC. It's being produced by 50 Cent. I guess he figured he has some success with power and he was going to take it to network television. It is based on the true story of a formerly incarcerated person who was sent to jail wrongfully and essentially got access to law books and a legal library, leveraged that to be able to get degrees online, found a loophole to uh, be able to get the bar, have that bar certification transferred to the state that he was in and begin to try cases even while he was still incarcerated. Now, I don't know how many of those details are the true to life part and how many of them were part of just the television dramatization of it all. But it really made me think about how much the television and film drama around the prison industrial complex has softened the reality of some things, in particular books. So we've all got an image in our head that the lucky person gets the job to tend to the library and be the librarian for um, other incarcerated people, that all of the books are easily accessed, that they are free, that they're in good condition, um, that they are there in vast amounts. And Clint can probably tell you better than lots of other people. This is simply not true. In West Virginia, there's a program that is supposed to help alleviate the reality of the lack of access to books and quality material called Project Gutenberg. And through the project, incarcerated people are gifted uh, supposedly free tablets that allow them to download books and to read them. But the truth of this, just like uh, the reality when compared to film and television, is much more harsh. The truth of the matter is that while the tablet may or may not be free, actually reading on the tablet is not. So for a few cents a minute, uh, an incarcerated person can read a book. But here's an example of what the actual cost is. So the Appalachian Prison Book Project did the math on this. The book 1984 is 330 pages. If you read 30 pages per hour, assuming a level of reading fluency that is pretty high, it would take you 11 hours to read 1984. That would cost someone $19.80 on this system. Uh, It's nearly $2 an hour. But here's the problem. Not only is that not free, and in my opinion, it should be, 
incarcerated people in West Virginia are making an average of 30 cents an hour. That means that people are making even less than that. 30 cents an hour compared to $2 an hour just to read a book that was easily available to so many of us is deeply, deeply problematic. On another layer, there's also a great deal of censorship happening and a number of books that have cultural interests for people that involve African-American legacy or Latinx legacy, as well as some other subjects are actually not at all available. And so I wanted to bring this up because I think that as I was watching that show, I was reminded of how sanitized our picture of incarceration is. And this is a, a really frustrating example of how much I think those of us in the general public have been convinced of a level of comfort in prison circumstances that just isn't true. Yeah, I think a lot of folks operate under this illusion that like they think of prison, they think of Malcolm X and they think of like Malcolm X reading all these books while he's in prison and that books are easily available and a large selections of books are easily available to people in prison. But it's not true. There's so many prisons and so many jails where people have little to no access to books. And I think that we can take for granted on the outside, we, we assume that like, oh, there's a prison library or, oh, there are some organizations who I'm sure are providing for these folks, but prison after prison, jail after jail, remind me that there are so many places and people in these cells and in these institutions who don't have access to more than just a, a handful of books that might have been donated years and years ago. And I think the stories that get lifted up are the the ones where, you know, you'll see the 60-minute special of this organization or this jail in Connecticut or this jail in D.C. that's trying to revolutionize the sort of educational experience of incarcerated folks. But those are exceptions to the rule. They are not the rule. And there are many, many places that don't provide any access to books. So I'd encourage folks to look up in your local area. There's often folks who are doing educational work in prisons, whether it be local universities or local nonprofits, who are looking for people to donate books that they can then bring into the prison. So if you have extra books and you're looking to do a book donation, or you can create a book drive yourself. People also underestimate the extent to which these correctional institutions are willing to accept the books. Like it's not always an antagonistic, like we don't want these folks to be able to read. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's simply like they're not thinking about it. But I think that if you take the initiative, create a book drive and reach out to the local department of corrections, you, you might be surprised by how open they are to you bringing boxes of books in, which could really transform the lives of a lot of people. You know, this is one of uh, yet another example of how the system of for-profit mass incarceration directly gets in the way of any sort of conception or policy that would advance public safety goals, right? So while we work towards the goal of decarceration, you have a program that is providing people with tablets and giving people access, some sort of access to the outside world in terms of information, in terms of knowledge, in terms of learning, you know, all of that. And then the profit motive comes in and they try to exploit people with this program instead of giving people access to something that could help them reintegrate into society when they're released, right? And we already know that, you know, if you are able to have access to books, if you're able to have access to an education uh, while incarcerated, that that has benefits beyond the individual, that has societal benefits, right? That helps the individual, it helps the society, it addresses the challenges of reintegrating into society, and yet they are pricing people out of having access to this, and to the extent that people do participate, they're taking people's hard-earned money, extremely hard-earned money, making sense an hour, and having to spend it all on, you know, reading a portion of a book, which is wild to me. I've always sort of wondered and considered, like, what would it mean if folks who are incarcerated broadly had access to the internet, had access to a connected computing device, whether that's a tablet or, um, you know, a smartphone or a computer or something where even while incarcerated, you had some sort of ability. It didn't cost, you know, a million dollars. It wasn't cost prohibitive. It wasn't exploitative, but you could actually access the wealth of knowledge in the world and use that as a springboard to get a degree or learn about a particular topic or get a particular skill that once you are released, you can then use that and integrate into society. And yet, you know, yet and still we see the profit motive get in the way of that. And it's just sad, you know, it's like this could be a sort of low hanging fruit solution um, to help folks. And instead it is used as another tool on top of an existing system that is designed to exploit the same folks. My news is about the Kentucky Derby. So the way I got to this, because I'm not a big, you know, I don't follow horse racing. 
But the way that I got to this is that I was reading something else about the number of horses that have died in the state of Florida recently, in the Florida racetracks. So I was just curious about that. And there's a whole set of activists who are working really hard to make sure that we either end the conditions that cause the racehorses to die. The average horse can live up to 30, 40 years. Uh, but racehorses are dying after two, five years now. So uh, that has been interesting. But it made me think about how race plays into uh, horse racing. And what I didn't know, and this is fascinating to me, is that the Kentucky Derby used to be a pretty black sport. So uh, there's an article that was written by Catherine Mooney, who has a book about this. What she writes about is that in the 19th century, when racehorsing or horse racing was the most popular sport in America— Formerly enslaved people were jockeys and trainers, and Black men won more than half of the first 25 runnings of the Kentucky Derby. Half of the first 25 runnings of the Kentucky Derby were run by Black men. And it ended in the 1890s as a result of Jim Crow. And now what's really wild about it is that one of the reasons why it ended— is because white jockeys started to demand segregated races, that they were frustrated with the black jockeys who were winning so many things. She even links to an op-ed in 1908 where there's a white jockey who says, and I quote, that he did not like to have the Negro riding in the same races with him. And there was a 1905 Washington Post article titled Negro Rider on Wayne, that essentially was making this argument that Black men were inferior and were just going to phase out of the process. But I had no clue that this was a sport that Black people dominated, had done really well in, and then racism made people end Black people's participation. And today, people don't, you know, it's a pretty white sport. It's not a set of Black riders at all. Not only is it a white sport, the culture around horse racing, especially the Kentucky Derby, is centered around whiteness and white wealth, right? That there is a everything from a parade of fashion and hats to exclusive parties and spaces where a lot of Black people don't frequent because they are not invited. Now, as the resilient, powerful, creative people that we are, Black folks have built their own space, their own traditions around the Kentucky Derby, and most certainly have made their presence known. I've got some friends who keep telling me to come down to the Derby just to be able to see what it is uh, to be black and in Kentucky at that at that moment because we've created so much down there. But you know, as we say in the world of Twitter, or you know, as uh, women often say to the men in our lives, I just find it funny how. Black folks start to dominate something, and suddenly the rules shift. We see this happening over and over and over again when marginalized people do better than expected at anything, especially when that achievement embarrasses the very folks that were trying to hold them back. I say all the time that complimenting the resilience of Black people is actually not the highest compliment that you can award us. You have to recognize that we are inherently creative, inherently powerful, inherently intelligent, and not just intelligent despite what has happened to us, not just strong in spite of what has happened to us. That said, there is something to be said for all of the ways in which Black folks have uh, made a way and been excellent at the very last things that people ever expected us to be excellent in. Um, so this Black History Month, I'm glad that you brought us that little known Black history to the pod. I'm glad that that article was written because ultimately we have to recognize that there is Black excellence across the board and not just in the places where people expect us. Yeah, just briefly. I mean, you know, similarly, I didn't know this history. And I think now about how difficult it is for a lot of folks to even begin horseback riding in the first place, because lessons, I looked it up, private lessons for horseback riding range between like 60 to 90 bucks an hour, which is an expensive, expensive thing. Um, so obviously, as you can imagine, that prevents a lot of folks who otherwise might be interested from even entering the sort of horseback riding, equestrian, racing world in the first place. So I have no doubt that there are some organizations out there or some groups out there who provide lower cost entry points into uh, equestrian, but it is a sport that's difficult for a lot of folks who don't have, who aren't upper middle class or wealthy to, to enter in the first place. So a lot of the Folks who otherwise might be really good at horseback riding are prevented from entering in the first place. And I think that exists for a lot of, not even just in sports, but like a lot of, a lot of spaces. So, but this was a, a really, really fascinating piece of black history. So um, hopefully you all learned something with us. 
dollars an hour. That's them therapy prices. I don't know if that horse can do for me. What my therapist does. <laughs> <laughs> Brittany, that's oh, therapy price. Get out. Talk to y'all next week. <laughs> that's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this... This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist has had quite the career. Before he became the first black lieutenant governor of the state of Michigan, he worked at Microsoft. He took part in social justice initiatives. And now he's focused on how to make people's lives better across the entire state. It was great to talk to him. Here we go. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Ray, I'm really happy to be here. You know, um, I love how y'all do the intros in the other part of the show. So you can call me Garland Gilchrist, I, I. <laughs> GG, GG, that's going to be a GG. We're going to be like, GG, GG on a podcast today. Um, let's start with your story. So what is Lieutenant Governor? People are like, what is Lieutenant Governor? In some places, Lieutenant Governor is like a ceremonial fill-in for if the governor dies or something. So can you talk about like how you, why Lieutenant Governor, why is this role important, and then how you got there? So I appreciate that. And, and admittedly, when I was first approached about joining uh, Gretchen Whitmer as her running mate to be lieutenant governor of Michigan, I had to make sure I understood what lieutenant governor was. And in Michigan, it is the, the you're the person who is next in the line of succession. But it actually so whenever the governor is out of state, then I serve as acting governor. I also am the president of the Michigan Senate, which is kind of like the vice president being the president of the Senate. I get to ta- cast tie breaking votes. But also I literally preside over Senate session. So I'm there. Uh, as a sort of parliamentary officer to make sure that Senate session actually happens uh, the way that it's supposed to every day here in the state capitol. But beyond that, you know, the the role is about how can, you know, we use the the talents, the capabilities, the experiences of the lieutenant governor to support the the issues and priorities that matter to the administration and therefore matter to the people. So, you know, in my case, um, I'm a kind of perfect compliment, if you will, to to Gretchen Whitmer. Um, She's a woman. I'm a man. She's white. I'm black. I'm from Detroit. She's from Lansing. Uh, I've had experience in the private sector. She's been mostly a legislator her whole career. And so we kind of bring different things to the table. And so I'm trying to use everything that I've seen in my life experience, you know, as a black man from Detroit who has a technical background, but who's worked in social justice and in advocacy as well as in local government, trying to use all those experiences to make sure that we can make the kind of change that we need to see in the state and, and particularly for the communities that I come from and care about. Talk about your the transition from being in the private sector to social justice. How did you, what, what was the what there? Like, why did you one day decide that being deeply immersed in social justice issues was going to be your calling? 
Well, it's my my parents' fault. So in our neighborhood in Detroit, uh, my parents were super active in the community. They were the president and vice president of our block club. So when I was really little, like four years old, I'm, you know, with them in meetings and knocking on doors and making sure everybody has agendas and all that kind of stuff. So I saw activism in terms of our community and, and community collective action at a very, very young age and saw them, you know, do things like ensure that real estate development in their neighborhood in Detroit was something that people actually wanted and that was supported by public art and things like that. So that example really stuck with me. When I went to engineering school at the University of Michigan, um, I was there when our admissions policies were on trial at the Supreme Court for our use of affirmative action, both the law school and the undergrad school. And I led an organization for black men on campus called HEADS, which had the most college acronym you could ever think of. It was called HEAR, Earning a Destiny through honesty, eagerness, and determination of self. I got all the words. All the words. Hey, look, it's it's, it's very, 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 very college. And But we would eat this group of black men, 50 black men, met every Monday night and talked about issues that matter to us. And it was really transformative space. And it was through that organization that I was able to work with and lead some of the student response to our affirmative action trial back in 2004, helping organize buses to go for our day in court in D.C., And so as a student activist, I got a chance to really just be a leader and connect with with other students who cared and really try to fight back against some of the just blatant racism that existed on campus when I was there. But all of that, DeRay, was, you know, kind of, you know, on the side, if you will, because I was an engineering student going to school to be a software developer. And after I graduated from college, I moved to Seattle to do that full time. I worked for Microsoft as a software developer, building SharePoint, fast growing business, fastest growing business in the history of the company. And that was cool professionally. But I was missing what I had um, as an activist and as a learner and as a leader. And so back in 2005, I started a political blog called The Super Spade, Black Thought at the Highest Level with my two best friends from college. And, you know, back in 2005, if you remember, like there weren't a lot of us folks who look like us and sound like us writing about politics in a visible way on the Internet. And so it gave me a chance, however, to not only tell you know my story and our perspectives, but it connected me with people in the progressive and social justice movements who were also using the Internet in this way. And I had never met a person who worked at a nonprofit. I'd never met a person who was an, an activist or a, a, an organizer as a professional, as their vocation. And so this opened me up to a whole new a network of people who were connecting their professional time to the things that they were passionate about. And it was those connections that led me to volunteer and then work on the Obama campaign in 08. And then after that experience, I believed that I could make this my vocation. And so, you know, the week before I got married, quit my good job at Microsoft. A month after we got married, moved across the country to get classically trained as a community organizer at the Center for Community Change. And it was about learning that practice of organizing and power building, but then using technology, using the ways that people connected at that point. That was in 2009. The ways that people connect and communicate to scale social movements and movements for justice and rights in a way that wasn't possible with the classical practices. And so I did that at the Center for Community Change for two years. And that was the beginning of my career uh, in the social justice movement. Got it. Before we talk about the task force, I want to talk about uh, the question everybody's mind when they think about Michigan is Flint. I know you were in Flint for Black History Month. What's an update? What's going on? People want to know. Yeah. So I was actually in Flint yesterday <laughs> meeting with uh, the mayor of Flint and some other leaders. And, you know, the the city of Flint is this incredibly resilient one. And it's a resilient set of people who are frustrated because, you know, uh, they, for good reason, have lost trust in state government. And so, you know, our administration, we've tried to really show that, one, we're going to show up in a way that the, our predecessors ran away from the problems they created. Um, we want to be there and be present and ensure that um, people know that, that we're trying to reset and rebuild this relationship. You know, last year in our state budget, we delivered one hundred and twenty million dollars um, specifically for uh, water, for like lead line replacements, for helping people with fixtures in their homes um, to make sure that one that we can deal with the actual infrastructure challenges. But we also um, secured more funding to wrap around services for education and investment in this community, ensuring, ensuring that we know that the kids who have been exposed to whether it's uh, lead or other contaminants, they're going to have um, challenges that were created by the state, the state run problem. And so we want to make sure that they have the services and supports that they need. And they can also just at some point um, be able to trust again. And so I think that trust comes from relationship building. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's why Flint is the place that I've shown up more times in any, any other city except for Detroit where I live. And we're going to continue to do that. 
Um, we also are making sure that the that the uh, the leaders in Flint have the support that they need from the state, whether it's the school system leaders, whether it's the municipal leaders. Just know that the state government is going to be their partner instead of someone who's been their adversary in the past. Let's talk about the commission that you recently co-chaired around prisons and crime. How did a task force even come to be? Yeah, so the task force on jails and pretrial incarceration in Michigan is a task force that I co-chaired with the chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court named Bridget Mary McCormack. And this came out of an executive order that Governor Gresham Whitmer signed back in April of 2019. And the charge is actually pretty simple. It's that our county jail system is one, the front lines of this conversation around mass incarceration in Michigan. Our jail population in Michigan is, you know, three times as large as it was 40 years ago, even though we have a 50 year low in crime. And we need to understand who is in jail. Why are they there? for how long, and what can we do about it? But the problem was, we didn't actually know how to answer those questions in Michigan. In Michigan, we have 83 counties with 81 county jail systems, and all 81 of those county jail systems have a data system that's incompatible with its brethren. So we couldn't even do comprehensive research or did not have that capacity to do that kind of research and analysis at the state level. And so that's why, as part of this executive order, we were able to accept the support and partnership from the Pew Charitable Trust to support us to the tune of, I believe, nine full-time data and policy analysts that came in and worked with the 21-member task force to actually do the work, to go to counties, to to understand the data, to um, have the both the qualitative and quantitative conversations, to have the analysis so we can answer those questions about who is in jail, why, for how long, and what we can do about it. The task force itself was bipartisan in nature. So we had Republican and Democratic legislators from the House and Senate. We had people who have been formerly incarcerated. We have people who are survivors of crime and victims' rights advocates. We had judges. We had attorneys. We had prosecutors. We had, um, you know, defense attorneys. We had people who are county sheriffs and administer jails. We had police officers. And we had members of the community who have just had experiences with the criminal justice system. We had meetings starting in July, and they lasted all the way through December um, in cities all across the state, whether it's in Detroit, in the state capitol, but all the way up north in places like Traverse City and on the west side of the state in places like Grand Rapids. We had more than 14 hours of public comment from the public, people from almost every community in Michigan coming out and talking to us about their negative experiences, all universally negative experiences with the criminal justice system and what they want to see changed. And it was that public comment, um, those public comment periods, it was the expert testimony that we heard on the history of bail, on why people are in jail. We learned things like the fact that half the people who are in jail in Michigan are there pre-trial. They haven't even had their trial dates yet. We learned that half the people who are in jail in Michigan are there for something related to a suspended driver's license. I mean, they got their driver's license suspended. They got a fine. They couldn't pay the fine. And in Michigan, according to current law, if you don't pay your fine, the police have to arrest you and take you to jail. So now you're in jail. You can't drive to work to pay this fine that you shouldn't have. So we revisit to so we make recommendations that are trying to deal with those kinds of you know immediate issues while also dealing with the structural problems of having people in jail that shouldn't be. Let's talk about some of the findings and some of the things that are in and not in the report. Before I ask you specific questions, I'd love to know, like, what was something that you were particularly proud of that made it into the report? You know, when we see these reports come out, we're always mindful that some things are, like, easy to build a consensus around and some things are a little less easy to build a consensus around. Uh, What were those, like, of the recommendations that came out? Yeah, well, you know. I think the fact that we were able to reach consensus with this group of people who really are from every different perspective. And we had some pretty conservative, um, you know, lawmakers, for example, on this was really important. You know, if I have to start, I'll talk about the things that really surprised me and that I'm glad that we were able to address. Uh, The thing I just described about, you know, driver's licenses and just how that contributes to the ridiculous number of jail admissions that happen on an annual basis. You know, one of the primary drivers of the, the high jail emissions, which is leading to people having these jail stays for one, two, three or four days is just driver's licenses and people getting arrested and brought in for things that have nothing to do with their driving safety. So I'm proud that they really the number one, like the lead recommendation coming out of there has to do with addressing that problem, which is really, I think, addressing an immediate harm when it comes to people who are being quickly and frequently incarcerated. Um, so I'm proud of that. 
I'm also proud that we tried to do things in terms of people um, having a right to actually get a trial and not sit in jail and be warehoused before they even have a trial. There was a story in Genesee County, which is the county, incidentally, that where, where Flint, Michigan is, where there was a man named Larry Clemens who actually was in jail pre-trial for five years. And just two weeks ago, that man was fully exonerated. He was there as a murder suspect and was fully exonerated from that crime. But he had already spent five years in jail. So we tried to deal with some, make some structural recommendations to make sure that people have access to speedy trials and speedy arraignment and things like that. While we need to implement all 18 of these in some form, really, because, you know, we can't really have a half-baked solution. So if you just deal with, for example, the speedy trials, but you still have a fine and fee structure that is uh, that is really makes us have debtors jails in Michigan, um, that's not really going to work for reform. If you're still able to, you know, impose bond that is not shown to be able to uh, encourage people to appear in court, um, that's not really going to be sufficient reform. So while I want to see everything happen, those two really jump out to me as important structural changes. One of the things that I was surprised that I didn't see in the breakdowns of the data was race. So in almost all the graphs, they are race neutral. Was that a, can you talk about how that choice was made? So we have analysis that um, has race in some of the parts of the state. One of the problems is I talked about having those 81 county jail data systems and them not being compatible. It's not something that's been collected consistently across the state of Michigan. So from places where we had it, um, that was using the analysis. But when we, a lot of those charts were statewide aggregates and since that data wasn't available statewide. However, we did talk about some of the specific um, issues when it comes to race in the system. Things like the fact that black women continue to be one of the fastest growing populations in our jail system. Women in rural counties are also really the number one driver of county jail emissions and county jail growth. Black men make up 29% of jail emissions, but 6% of the resident population. But the 29% of jail emissions are these people coming in for these really short stays. But these short stays are disruptive. Like, you know, if you're in jail for a few hours, if you're in jail for a night, that means you're not going to work, means you're not picking up your kids, means somebody else has to cover for you. I mean, these are things that are really disruptive to these communities. So while that was in part of our analysis where we actually had the data, unfortunately, um, that data was not collected consistently. It has not been collected consistently historically across the state of Michigan. That's part of why the last recommendation is about data collection and having a uniform standard. And part of that is uh, collecting deeper and more robust information about race and identity. Got it. That makes sense. And I push because, you know, I think about even your, both your focus in this conversation and the focus in the report that talks about the importance of jail emissions or the importance of traffic violations as a sort of gateway to jail emissions. And I think about the first chart in the report that echoes what you just said that is about this notion of it says the last time crime was this low, far fewer Michiganders were in jail. The other thing I wanted to sort of push on while we were here is uh, what I don't see is a mention of the police outside of the discretion when we think about traffic stops. And the reason I ask that is that that report just came out about the Grand Rapids police that shows that black people, that there's a a racial disparity in traffic stops. So when we think about the police sort of nationwide is that we know there are so few ways to get to jail that don't include the police, right? People aren't like walking into jail on their own. So if the police are the main driver of how people get to jail in the first place, I'm trying to figure out how you do a jail strategy that is absent of real structural change with policing when uh, departments in Michigan themselves, like Grand Rapids, have noted that there's a disparity in stops. So yes, traffic violations are their own issue. But one of the reasons it seems why people are being put in jail in the first place is not because of a lack of discretion amongst officers, but because of racially disparate policing in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's a fair question. You know, the truth is um, police have been and continue to be the gateway to to the, to the jail community. I mean, we there's a lot of issues that we need to work on in police reform in the state of Michigan, whether it's, you know, straight up diversifying um, who makes up law enforcement. But part of this is giving police, frankly, different charges and different rules and mechanisms or, or should I say different structures to work within and restructuring that and changing what they can and cannot do. And this this report does deal with that. And so th- there's a lot of work to do. You know, I mean, the Michigan State Police, for example, um, you know, we're trying to do work to, to, to force that you know, needs to diversify. And the, the leadership on that has certainly reflected that and and is trying to work on that problem. And we're seeing that in local uh, jurisdictions as well. But I think that 
this is part of a larger story. So while we need to reform the jail system, while we need to continue to build on the reforms that we've done in the Michigan Department of Corrections prison system, there's work that needs to be done in policing as well. This report was pretty focused. And so I don't think the expectation um, should be that this was going to be the panacea for mass incarceration in the state of Michigan. But there are reforms to policing. There is a a big section for the first kind of chunk of the recommendations have to do with uh, arrest deflection as well as diversion. And so these things, if we do this, we believe that people will have a pretty different experience with the criminal justice system. And that's going to impact our community in pretty important ways when it comes to black folks or Latinos or women who have been um, disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system in Michigan. Got it. That makes sense. And only pushing this idea that, like, worry about the way we separate the police in jail. Like, again, if we acknowledge that one of the only ways to get to jail is through policing, then they really are like a hand in hand issue. And that's why I'm not talking about police violence that results in death, which I do think is a different sort of thing. But they are part of the jail. I'd be interested, um, you know, because when you look at the data collection recommendation, it doesn't necessarily call out the disaggregation as a key. Like, it makes sort of a broad statement about the importance of data collection. And would be interested if there would be teeth later, and this is more of a, I guess, more of a statement, but, you know, I'm open, uh, about what that means for race and uh, other subcategories. Because, again, when I think about this recommendation that is included around the discretion to give to police, is that there are a lot of people who would scoff and say, like, more discretion is the last thing we need to give police if the goal is less incarceration, right? So if you do this, it would be... Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on that on that front, though, one of the reasons why that discretion matters is because the law actually, for example, I gave that that example with the traffic stops, the law requires police to take people to jail that they shouldn't take to jail. And so um, that discretion is actually opening up the door for something that they actually don't have a choice to do. Um, and I think that the, we're broader with these. This is a set of recommendations made to the legislature. That was the charge that the task force was given. But this isn't over. The task force, the Pew support, it actually still exists through September of 2020. And this body is now transformed into an advocacy organization, frankly, to advocate for the Michigan legislature to now get, have both the spirit and the letter to these recommendations reflected. And so as part of that process, as we continue to encourage people to participate and testify in the hearings process, that'll be part of uh, lawmaking. Um, we're encouraging people to continue to come forward and continue to um, raise these questions, the same questions that came up as part of our public testimony. So I think it's, as folks are talking about how they can um, participate, they can continue to watch or be watchdogs, you know, frankly, on this process as these things develop. And it's something certainly that I'm going to be um, spending a lot of time in 2020 focused on to get this stuff right. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is uh, this is a pretty progressive uh, set of recommendations, which is a good thing. In the executive summary, there was this one thing that I just also that I didn't understand. And I was like, since he's here, let me just ask, is that it says jail as a tool for public safety as like the first header. And the paragraph after that sort of is way more progressive than that title is. <laughs> But I just like didn't. I'm like, what am I meant? Like, can you explain this idea of jail? Like for that to be the very first header, I was like, I don't know what this report's going to say. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a fair point. You know what that um, what that's talking about is there is a perception that jails create public safety. And one of the things that the reason that this this task force exists was to actually interrogate that question and to see if how we are using jails is that actually promoting public safety. And we found, I think, in this report pretty, pretty cleanly that the way that we've been using jails has not been a tool for public safety. It's, it's done things that is that research has shown, for example, that even a, a short jail stay um, only leads to more jail time for people, like it leads to people being rearrested. Um, for different kinds of things. And so we actually, the reason that that paragraph is progressive, as you put it, is because we're showing that the way we've been using jails has not been a tool for public safety and it's not an effective one. Yeah, that header was not, I was like, what? Is this a statement? I was like, is this a question? What is, it's like, okay, we're for a ride. I was like, why did he want to be on the pod with this, with this header? Okay. Um, and talk about, can you talk about the probation and parole? You know, given that we know a lot of people are incarcerated, but way more people are on probation and parole, and this is an underexplored area of the criminal justice space. Can you talk about that recommendation and why you thought that was important? Well, you know, there's a whole uh, just conversation around people who are um, under supervision. And so um, we're trying to make sure that 
we are being consistent with the research that exists and that continues to emerge that shows that a lot of forms of supervision just are sort of are not effective at all um, in terms of promoting public safety. And then, in fact, they can be quite regressive in terms of having people, I would say, you know, pay for their handcuffs. People have to pay for their tethers and things like that. We just think it was important to take a look at that and to, one, make sure that that, that burden is not placed upon people. Um, but also just just that is something that has been underexplored in the system and underexplored in Michigan, frankly. And so um, we want to limit those to very, very, very um, like specific cases that have to be, um, you know, clearly sort of articulated by a prosecutor, by a judge. And right now that's used with a level of discretion that we think is not protecting or promoting public safety. And what's a timeline for like what's ne- so task force recommendations out in the world? You said the task force still exists in some way, and now it's an advocacy group of people. What's next? Yeah, so in the process, so we delivered them to the we delivered the recommendations to the legislature in mid January or the beginning of January, and so now the legislature, uh, the Michigan House, will be taking the lead on most of this stuff. Uh, is now going to his drafting legislation that reflects these, and that will go through a hearings process. So. You know, we have commitment um, from leadership thus far that they're going to work to have these these bill drafts expedited, these hearings to happen quickly. So we're trying to work as fast as we can, frankly, in 2020 to get this stuff ref- reflected and codified in the law. Uh, the Speaker of the Michigan House called this his number one priority. The chair of the relevant chairs of relevant committees are called the number one priorities. And so we're hoping that that means that we see some action on this in the first half of the year. So we're trying to push for that. How many people do you think that these reforms will impact? So 18 recommendations is a lot and seems to be broad ranging. But do you have a sense of like how many lives this would touch or what the scale of these, if all implemented, would be? So that's that's a, a difficult number to quantify. But 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 here's why. So sure, we have, you know, a number of people who are in the county jail system. But the truth is, Ray, and I think you understand this, like, when someone goes to jail, it's disruptive to way more than that individual person, right? It's disruptive to their family, their kids, their neighbors, um, their coworkers, uh, the people they go to school with. It's really a pretty, a really broad number. There's a huge multiplier on that. So, um, you know, in 2016, there were about 16,000 people, over almost 17,000 people who were in jail. Uh, but that is not reflective of the number of lives that I think this touches. And remember also that the, that's not counting the people who were under supervision, the people who've had negative judgments and are still dealing with those negative judgments uh, on their records. So I think this scales pretty quickly into a, a significant portion of uh, the population in Michigan. That's why we thought this was so important. And that's why I spent so much time on it. And what's next for you? So now that this is this task force has ended this part of it, is there another set of issues or an issue that will be a thing that you do a deep dive on? Yeah. So, um, again, we, we're going to try to land a plane on these criminal justice reforms and some other ones, including things related to record expungement, um, trying to work to uh, do what we can to even automate that process for people. You know, the thing that uh, Governor Whitmer and I made news on the day after we were elected in 2018 was um, working to expunge people's records. Um, for marijuana, which was, uh, you know, cannabis, which was made legal um, under Michigan law um, for recreational or adult use. And so um, we're going to try to land the plane on those sorts of things. But uh, personally, you know, my portfolio, I'm really focused on doing things like better connecting our communities to the Internet. Um, you know, access to the Internet is, is pretty, pretty strongly stratified in Michigan, whether it's around actual literal build out, having to be affordable to people in a real way. Um, and also increasing people's digital literacy. Um, I also will be building on something last year. I did a 19 city tour called Thriving Cities, where we were talking about improving quality of life in cities. Um, and this was where we went to places like Jackson and Saginaw and Detroit and Kalamazoo and Marquette and Grand Rapids um, and everywhere in between. And we talked about things like creating generational economic opportunity, affo- increasing access to affordable housing, improving environmental quality and justice, uh, improving tr- access to transportation and mobility services. And so I'm focused on um, those issues in 2020 as well. And a lot of these sort of criminal justice related reforms um, reflect that, you know, expunging people's records has been shown to increase a person's earning potential, you know, 25 to 30 percent instantly. And so doing that in communities across the state where people, you know, can't get jobs or frankly can't start businesses or can't get certain types of professional licenses because um, they have these criminal records or something we need to change Um, the legislation that I was able to sign into law in November of, of 2019 enable people with certain types of uh, felonies on their record to now no longer be prohibited from becoming entrepreneurs and doing things like selling insurance. So 
Uh, everything that I'm working on is about, you know, it's kind of breaking down these barriers so that people can really exercise their full potential in Michigan, regardless of where you are, regardless of your station in life. That you can be in a better connected community and you can realize, you know, your full potential in imagination. And how has uh, how has being a dad informed the way that you think about your responsibility in this role? Man, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a dad first. Uh, you know, I had a uh, my baby girl is seven months old, Ruby. I have, oh, you got a baby, baby. Yeah, seven months old. I got a I got twin six year olds who were born on my birthday in 2013, and uh, this is like the, nothing humbles you like your children, right? Because they just do not care about <laughs> <laughs> about the work. So one, it keeps me centered. You know, I I, I was the first uh, person. Um, at my level in state government to actually affirmatively take parental leave, which I did to spend time with my wife and my family. After our daughter was born, I took four weeks to do that because I thought it was an important statement of values for fathers to spend time with their children. And, you know, coming off of that, you just remember that like people have important things to do in their lives and they don't really care about the day to day minutia of most things political. And so for me, yeah, um, being a father keeps me grounded. And what are the things that we need to do just to make sure that people just don't have barriers to doing the things that they want to do to make sure that their kids are happy and to make sure that their kids are just fed and protected and, and can be imaginative and can be funny, and that they don't have to be scared, that they don't have to be concerned about what's coming around the corner. They don't have to be concerned about being pulled over, that they can just live their lives and be their best selves. Um, the other thing I think about is when I graduated from college, you know, I wanted to be a software developer and I felt like I couldn't be a software developer the way I wanted to be in Michigan. So I moved to Seattle. I moved all the way to the West Coast. And so when I'm talking about better connecting communities so that we can have um, people have experience opportunity in a way that makes sense for them, that's really about, you know, laying the foundation so that kids like mine can see a future for themselves in Michigan. Michigan was the only state that lost population according to the census in 2010. And, uh, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like in this census is why I'm asking everybody to fill it out for our state plea count, so our state complete count committee. But I want to lay the foundation so that, you know, everybody feels like the, that Michigan has a place for them today, has a place for them tomorrow, has a place for them to build a family. And so I want my babies to, to know that they can be who they want to be here in Michigan um, you know, if you fall in love from somebody in another state, I can't do nothing about that. But it, no matter what you want to be, you want to be an artist, an architect, a dancer, an engineer, a lawyer, whatever you want to do. I want them to feel like they have a path for it here in Michigan. And if I play my cards right, then I think that that will be possible for more people. Cool. Well, um, thanks for joining us today on Pod to the People. We can see your friend of the pod and can't wait to uh, see you again. No doubt about it. Thank you, Dre. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.